Welcome to Travels Through Time, the podcast made in partnership with ACE Cultural Tours. Hello, I'm Artemis, and in today's episode, I'm speaking to the sports writer, Paul Hayward, about an extremely important year in English history, the year we won the World Cup. Paul was the Daily Telegraph's chief sports writer for more than 20 years. He's been named Sports Writer of the Year by the Sports Journalists Association on five occasions and has been Sports Journalist of the Year twice at the British Press Awards. He also co-wrote the autobiographies of Sir Alex Ferguson, Sir Bobby Robson and Michael Owen. His new book, England Football, The Biography, is the story of the men's football team since their very first international fixture against Scotland on a cricket pitch in 1872, all the way up to the modern team's preparations for the World Cup in Qatar. Paul, welcome to Travels Through Time. I'm really excited to have you on the podcast this week, particularly as it's a kind of World Cup special episode, which we've never done before. So I know you must be incredibly busy covering the World Cup at the moment. So thank you for coming on the podcast. You're welcome. It's a pleasure. So we're recording earlier in the week, but this episode is going to come out on Friday, which is the day before England's match against France. And I have to just we have to just dwell on that for just a little moment we just have to speak about it because there was a time when England couldn't dream of doing as well as we have been doing in international tournaments um, recently what's changed and why is this particular England team doing so well well this game is a big one England's traditional rivalries biggest rivalries are with Germany and Scotland but there's a certain uh, frisson uh, in games against France for historical uh, cultural and sporting reasons so I think by Saturday the country will be in a in a fevered state uh, England uh, are undergoing something of a renaissance uh, two really good tournaments recently a semi-final and a final the pressure is on them now to, to to build on that and to go all the way to this World Cup final and really to win it. To lose in a quarter final would be seen as regression, I think. But there is a there's an excellent spirit in the camp and there's some seriously good uh, attacking players, young players, the best crop of players for decades. And it's just a question of whether they can actually deliver on their potential. Mm. And France are obviously quite they're the reigning champions, so. Yes, France have set the standard really for England over the last 20 years. Uh, at, at international level, they've been extremely successful. They've got tournament know-how, experience, and you know they've actually won trophies, which is something England haven't managed. So for England to beat France in the quarterfinal would be you know, a sort of a, a cathartic moment, I think. Mm, definitely. Well, let's not dwell on it too much because um, I'll get nervous otherwise and <laughs> forget about the history. Um, <laughs> Me too. How does one begin to write a biography of English football? How did you first come to have the idea to write a biography of it? And how did you go about writing it? Well, I must give credit to a a man called Ian Marshall at Simon & Schuster, who spotted that the 150th anniversary of England's first game would fall during the Qatar World Cup. And nobody had ever really written a sort of comprehensive biography of the England men's uh, football team. And the word biography is important there because it's not a history or a chronology. It's a, it's an attempt to tell a story, really, thematically, and to sort of explain and understand this 150-year uh, voyage from a cricket pitch in Scotland in 1872, where England played Scotland in a nil-nil draw, to what we're seeing in Qatar now. Uh, football as this, you know, conglomerate, this, you know, international. Uh, fantastically sort of um, wealthy and obsessed over spectacle that we're seeing now. And, and, and it's a fascinating journey. England, England have not been historically particularly successful at international level, uh, but, the, you know, the will and the spirit and the resources are there and, and they keep going. They keep pursuing this second major trophy. They've only won one uh, in 1966, the year I think we're going to talk about and they need another one. But it, it was a very interesting uh, journey to go into archives and to travel around the country, uh, speaking to people and try to, trying to understand this, this enormous story, which after all is a, is a major part of English life. 
And that leads me on really nicely to my next question, because I'm I was really fascinated by a 150 year biography. You know, there's so many different um, players and managers and things happen and the country changes. To what extent, when you were researching and writing the book, did you come across a kind of essential English quality that could be reflected in football? Or is that a total myth, this idea of like an English national character? No, I don't think it's a myth at all. I think the England football team is, is an expression of the national character in so many ways. For example, the imperial delusions of the Victorian era and, uh, and, and really a period running up to the modern day in many ways, this idea that because England invented uh, football and invented certainly the international game, that they somehow owned it, the sense of entitlement, the the closing of minds to uh, foreign influences and cultural changes in the game, uh, the, the the blockages in English thinking, the, the parochialism which held English football back until it was forced, I think, to embrace the cosmopolitanism of the Premier League era. All that's very... Um, reflective of, of of the English outlook in many ways. And another example would be, you know, English hooliganism ab- abroad, which is a which is a sort of occupying mindset when a proportion of England fans go abroad and try to occupy foreign towns and cities in a in a, in a way that's very reminiscent of a sort of um it's a throwback really to to a particularly imperialistic English nationalistic mindset. And and again, in many ways, you, you look at the England football team and, and, and see it as, a, as, a, as an expression of who the English are, uh, good and bad. Mm. It's fascinating. I, I'm so fascinated by how much we can learn about um, history and about society through sport. It's really interesting. Paul, you've hinted at it um, a little bit already, but would you like to tell listeners, if you could travel through time, what year would you visit? I think I would go to 1966, professional reasons to do with the book I've written, but also because 1966, I think, was a was a turning point in in many ways, certainly in the history of modern sport, but also in society and culture. Let's go straight to your first scene, because I think this is a really important one and it's going to tell us a lot about the context of the of the kind of the crux of the year, the emotional crux of the year. So where are we in our first scene? Um, if we were if we were to be in a place, where would we be physically? We would probably be in the England training camp at Hendon, where Alf Ramsey was preparing this very hardened group of English footballers, strong characters, uh, big names in the English club game for the, the challenge of their lives. And the challenge... Uh, that had been coming for English football after a pretty unsuccessful start to their uh, World Cup participation. People always date the history of English football from 1966, but actually they entered the World Cup for the first time in 1950 and had been, well, frankly, very unsuccessful. They won three of their 14 World Cup matches, World Cup final matches between 1950 and 1962. So by the time they arrived at 1966, they were developing a reputation for underachievement. And given the sort of ownership delusion in the English game, it was starting to hurt because England were meant to be the kings of football. In 1950, the Brazilian media uh, proclaimed them as the kings of football. They were anything but. They came home in the group stage. And by 1966, in a home tournament, remember, the the pressure was really on them to to finally deliver and finally conquer the summit of the world game. So Alf Ramsey, who had predicted when he took over the job that England would win the World Cup, that's quite a bold assertion, certainly not one that any current uh, modern England manager would make. All the pressure was on that small group of players at their sort of quite antiquated training centre at Hendon to finally give the English public the, the, the consummation that they were desperate for, uh, England as, as world champions. So they did that in a, in a fluid society, really. The England of the 1960s was, as we know, changing pretty rapidly. But Alf Ramsey was a, an extremely conservative figure. You know, he, he was rooted in the 1950s. Uh, many of the players were rooted in the Second World War, or certainly the post-war period. And it was a conservative with a small C environment where Ramsey stressed what you might call traditional uh, virtues. Uh, He certainly wasn't going out in Carnaby Street every Saturday night. And he certainly wasn't, you know, dressing um, like George Harrison in his Sergeant Pepper 
incarnation, the values that Alf Ramsey was stressing were uh, togetherness, hard work, abstinence from alcohol, uh, physical strength, force of character, all the things in many ways that English football believed would, in the end, you know, dominate the rest of the world and sort of quell this uprising of style and flair and extravagance. So I would love to have been in that camp in 66, knowing, seeing the pressure on those players to deliver on that mission and watching Alf Ramsey, who was called the general in his playing days by his teammates because he was so sort of bossy and authoritative. I'd love to have seen him going about his work in trying to justify the prediction he'd made three years earlier that England would win this World Cup. Mm. And I, I just want to dwell a little bit on the relationship between um, the English football team and then international football and FIFA. I had the I had the pleasure of watching the FIFA film United Passions um, quite recently, and they <laughs> the English are very much the antagonists in that film. They're very snobbish about the upstarts in the rest the rest of the world who want to try and you know claim football for their own. Is that an accurate portrayal of what was going on, the relations between the two? I mean, obviously, if the Brazilian press were were saying that England were the kings of football, they weren't. They weren't kind of too resistant to that to that ownership that England have had over it. The bureaucratic antagonism really goes back to the nineteen twenties, mainly when I don't think that the English Football Association was was averse to the idea of FIFA, but FIFA uh, was quite clear that it wanted to set itself up as the arbiter for the world game, the supreme authority. And the FA could never get their heads around that because they were a, they were a, they were a committee of sort of older manic uh, figures who, who thought they owned the game, thought they'd invented it, and really fully intended to carry on running it as much as they possibly could for decades and centuries to come. By the 20s, that was already a, an unrealistic um, view of the world because so many countries were emerging so many countries were embracing football and power was shifting to to other continents uh, and other cultures and the fa in the end really withdrew and decided to remain aloof and this is why uh, england didn't play in a world cup until 1950 and interestingly they paid the price for that it wasn't it wasn't a question of just arriving at a party late and being the, the funnest person at that party by the time they got there they entered a world that they could they could know they couldn't recognize uh, the game had moved on technically and tactically uh, it was being staged in countries particularly in brazil and, and chile and uh, countries far from the way far from the english experience and and england still had this sort of um, amateur mentality of turning up in these countries as if they were on a golf tour you know an amateur golf tour no real preparations, not enough staff, uh, everything sort of um, improvised. And they paid for it because they got a terrible culture shock in those first um, 10 or 15 years of World Cup competition. So the, the aloofness of the FA, which really started in, in the um, 1920s, came home to haunt the players and haunt the team um, between 1950 and 1966. Mm. Obviously, nowadays, um, a World Cup is like a huge international event and garners huge amounts of media attention and also just attention um, and enthusiasm from the general population. Was that the case as much in 1966? Was, this a sense, was there a sense of anticipation, excitement or indifference amongst the British people? Again, this is why 66 is such a turning point, because prior to that, Certainly in England, it was regarded as a sort of exotic, faraway competition, a bit like the Olympic Games. And some of the great players, the working class heroes, the street footballers of the 1950s had a, had a pretty sketchy uh, view of the World Cup before they actually entered it and got this, this culture shock. And frankly, they didn't take much notice of it. And the British media didn't take much notice of it. I think it was regarded as, a, as an upstart uh, competition. Uh, that, that the rest of the world played. So by the time the tournament became a reality in the summer of 1966, I think that the English public was aware that something big was happening, but there wasn't, there wasn't a fever. There wasn't the, the type of mania that you would see now if England uh, staged a World Cup. There was a, there was a sort of cautious curiosity. 
And the point has been made many times that when England played their first game at, against Uruguay at Wembley, uh, the match wasn't sold out. You could still buy a ticket on the gate and walk up to the turnstile and get in, which is, which is an extraordinary uh, thought. And games, of course, were played around the country. Some of the attendances in the northeast of England, for example, were disappointing. The, the concept of World Cup football as, as global spectacle, ob obligatory viewing, you know, um, four yearly kind of obsession that it hadn't happened yet by 1966. But after that tournament, all the ingredients were there for football to become this, this universal language, this universal uh, passion. The, the television numbers went through the roof and uh, colour television came in. And TV companies started to think of it as as, as the, their great sporting project alongside the Olympics. So you really see the World Cup becoming part of of the global language with 1966, and that's why it was such a, an important tournament, not just for England but but for the world game. Mm. I wanted to talk a bit about a particular story that's um, become very famous in the run-up to the World Cup, which is about how the trophy was stolen. Would you, I'm sure listeners um, are familiar with this story, but it's such a good one, I just couldn't resist asking you about it and including it in, in the podcast today. Could you tell listeners a bit about it? The World Cup trophy in the build-up to 1966 was apparently stolen. I mean, nowadays you would, you would, uh, you would suspect this of being a, a PR stunt, we're so cynical. Uh, all, a very cynical PR stunt, uh, particularly when it was found, supposedly found in, in the bushes by a dog called Pickles, who became a, a national hero. And, um, and it's talked about as, as sort of almost part of the 66 World Cup furniture, you know, this, this, um, this miraculous feel-good story that involved all the favourite elements of English life, a trophy, you know, a dog, and in the end, the Queen handing the trophy to, to uh, Bobby Moore, the England captain at Wembley. Nobody really knows what happened in that story, and I suspect um, nobody ever will. But what I can tell you is that by the time the trophy was transferred to Mexico for the 1970 World Cup, it had this enormous um, security detail of minders on the plane. It was, it, and it was received in Mexico by armed police and was whisked off to a safe because the idea had taken hold that this trophy was was vulnerable it was it was people wanted to steal it it was valuable it had to be protected uh, maybe again the the, uh, the mexican authorities were very clever ad cleverly adding luster to this chunk of metal by giving it an armed guard to a safe in mexico city but it it that created pickles the dog and 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 the, the Mexican sort of security operation to get it over the border in 1970 created much of the mystique around the trophy itself. I was going to say it was kind of reminding me of what you were saying about the 1966 World Cup being the one that sort of kicks off this the mystique, the mythology around the whole thing. That story kind of adds to that. Yes, it does. And the players, I think we'll talk about this later, but the players themselves you know, weren't turned into superstars or household names by the 1966 World Cup. But the game itself was starting to become an enormous industry, an enormous product. And FIFA uh, was starting to become a sort of quasi, you know, global body like the United Nations. They they started to see themselves as the Vatican of football because they knew that they had in their hands a, an immensely valuable commercial commodity that, that television companies and and, and corporations were starting to fall over themselves to get a share of. And the numbers were telling them that the World Cup was was really turning into uh, just a huge uh, a, a global spectacle to, to match in many ways the Olympics. So if you're looking for start points from the for the commercialization of modern football, you know, you could do a lot worse than start in 1966. Mm. Just before we get on to the game, which is obviously um, the most exciting, I think it's going to be the most exciting part of the conversation. I want to have time to dwell on that. But I wanted to talk about a bit about the cultural um, context of the game. And you mentioned um, how Britain was changing at this time. There was a certain international attitude, or perhaps maybe it's not international, maybe it's an internal attitude towards Britain at this time of like Cool Britannia, the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, Carnaby Street, all this type of stuff. How connected is the World Cup to this particular version of British identity in the 1960s? 
When you're writing a biography, you're, you're, you're obliged to examine, I think, or question conventional narratives. And the conventional view of London and England and Great Britain in the 1960s was this, this, this very cool place. I mean, it, there is a mythology around that. I mean, London was called the Swinging City by Time magazine, and that, that label kind of stuck. And I think people of subsequent generations assumed that you know, that everything was everything was free and easy. Everything was suddenly, everybody was liberated in London in the mid 60s. But actually, when you look at the, the, the history of that time, it, it was quite messy. I mean, for example, uh, the Wilson government was in crisis. Uh, they were forcing um, deflationary measures on the economy to save the pound. There was a freeze on incomes and prices, which provoked a sort of cabinet crisis. Uh, it was a conservative, very conservative society. Uh, the uh, the colonial office, this really stood out to me. I mean, the colonial office of the British government ceased to exist the day after the final. But there were still 30 governorships around the world with direct authority from the Queen. And these were these were people standing around in military uniforms, in, in white plumes and, uh, you know, like figures from the 19th century. So... The, the imperial um, notion of, of Britain, uh, the empire was still very much alive psychically, if not uh, in reality. Um, but at the same time, culturally, you know, the Beatles had released Revolver that year. George Harrison had met Ravi Shankar. Um, the number one, I think, during the 66 World Cup was Sunny Afternoon by the Kinks, which is, which is largely actually a, a lament about the high tax rates, you know, with that line, the tax man's taken all my dough. Um, so people, there, there was a, there was obviously a, a, a counterculture against this stifling conservatism of the 1950s. But I think sometimes the mistake we make is to assume that it was a victory for that counterculture. It was actually a, a, a pretty, a pretty bloody struggle uh, against a society that wasn't changing as fast as the, as we like to think in retrospect our sponsors ace tours delve into public and private collections in the company of expert art historians and lecturers their tours take in some of the best art collections around the world and explore the stories of their creators from the superlative collection of german expressionist art at leicester museum to the 38 renoirs on display at the clark art institute in massachusetts to find out more visit the ace website at www aceculturaltours.co.uk Yeah, and it seems, and I know we've sort of travelled to the late 1960s and other conversations on this podcast and that tension between the old and the new is, is really, is really, really present. Let's talk about your next scene, the second scene, where we're going in 1966. Um, would you like to tell us where we are? Well, we're in the uh, World Cup final or on the cusp of it on 30th of July 1966 and this sort of rugged hyper-organized super committed England team have uh, struggled through to the final. Now it's important to remember that they had home advantage all the way through and some of the South American countries felt that the big European countries particularly England were getting sort of a bit of help from the referees, sympathetic referees doesn't really uh, bear scrutiny, but nevertheless, they, they, they go into that final with the, with the country in a state, I think, as Arthur Hopcraft said in his great book, The Football Man, of, uh, of barely endurable tension. So a country that started out as being curious about the World Cup is now completely hooked and everybody's fighting for a ticket. They're playing West Germany, who haven't beaten England to that point. A West Germany team who, interestingly, are, are almost at some cultural level reluctant to beat England. Certainly the diplomatic staff in London were a bit worried about West Germany winning, winning the game because of, essentially because of war guilt. They were, they were worried that all the work they had done in the post-war period to, to rehabilitate themselves in, in the eyes of the other Western countries, and the English in particular, would be undermined if, if uh, West Germany uh, spoiled England's party at Wembley. And it's remarkable to think of that now. I mean, uh, that feeling didn't last very long. And I, and I don't think that the German team tried to act on it because it was a, it was a very tense, very physical 
exhausting, evenly matched uh, game between two teams of, of immense character. And although it felt at the time like the consummation for the England team and English football, it was in fact the beginning of the transfer of power to Germany. It was, it was England's last hurrah in many ways because subsequently um, Germany went off and won three World Cups and three European Championships and England won nothing. So, so although it was, it was bathed in this wonderful honeyed light of, 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 of English validation, with Bobby Moore holding the trophy and all those beautifully honeyed um, summary pictures of gallant English warriors, you know, uh, finally getting hold of that Jules Rimet trophy. It, w it was actually the beginning of the end of something rather than the beginning. But the feeling itself, when you look at the footage, the Pathé News footage, for example, of the teams coming out in this uh, at Wembley, this this cathedral to the game and the, and the pristine shirts with no advertising on them and the and the brown ball and the, the simplicity and purity of that match, I think is, is still very seductive. A lot of people are sick of talking about 66. It feels like a kind of museum piece. But at the same time, when you, when you go back and you watch the game and you watch the, the, the news coverage of it, it does feel like a, a curiously uh, innocent time and an, and an innocent spectacle. There was no segregation, for example, in the crowd. There was no question of separating German and English fans in case they had a fight or they were abusive. Uh, everybody mixed in together. Um, it was it was a sort of peaceful and civilised uh, spectacle in many ways, although uh, the great Hopcraft uh, complained about the complexion of the crowd because he thought it was too middle class. There were too many uh, rugby types in, in, in blazers who had come along and didn't know who the players were and, and was sort of um, asking silly questions about the Charlton brothers when you know, he wanted it to be very much a, a working class audience because it was still the working class game. Uh, he felt the final had been invaded by uh, <laughs> a sort of middle class Arivistes, if you like, which which is quite amusing. But in essence, I think the whole country was there, a cross section of English society uh, was there. And by the point, by the time they arrived in that final, uh, through the usual dramas of a, of a World Cup competition, where getting to the final is extremely uh, difficult. The country was thoroughly in love with the team. Mm. It's so interesting what you said about the crowds being mixed in together. Why do you think that, at what point did that become just not a possibility or that fear <laughs> of fighting and brawling became too much? Quite soon afterwards, actually, it was it survived. That, that tradition survived for the rest of the 1960s. But in the 1970s, uh, the club game uh, descended into a kind of very violent, tribalism. It didn't affect the England team so much because England didn't really qualify for tournaments in the 1970s. They caught up in the 80s and 90s with the, with the advent of, of uh, English hooliganism uh, around the national team. But the 60s still felt like this um, idyll. I mean, the English fans, England fans were so peaceful, in fact, that the um, National Supporters Federation in the early 60s formed a, an England supporters club to try and to try and drum up some passion and some, you know, some noise around the England team because some of the England players felt that they weren't supported as noisily and passionately as some of the other countries and it was a disadvantage to them. So there was an attempt to almost construct a kind of chauvinism around the England team. And the 66 final is really the last day when it would have been possible not to segregate England and Germany fans. <clears throat> and we could talk for a very long time about the socio-economic reasons about why it all went wrong in the 1970s, but it certainly did. Mm. I want to talk a bit about the kind of, if we could describe the experience, if we were fans, if we were there, um, we're walking into Wembley Stadium, how would the experience of watching a football match in Wembley Stadium in 1966 differ to today? Well, it was more affordable, for starters, and people would have walked in with rattles, rosettes. A lot of them would, be, would have been in suits, and most tellingly, I think the, the, the ensign of the England team at that time was still the Union Jack, the Union flag. It wasn't the Cross of St. George. The England fans sort of saw them as, the, as, as Britain's team, which must, which must have been immensely patronising to Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland. But uh, the English nationalism hadn't yet really fully identified itself through the team at that point. It was still, it, there was still a sort of a, a British feel about it. And... 
even now I look around the footage of the of the Wembley crowd that day and, and marvel at the number of Union Jacks and and marvel at the absence of uh, the Cross of St George, which I think really took over with England teams uh, at Euro 96 when everything was white background and, and red cross. And for, for some reason in the mid 90s, uh, English nationalism or patriotism shoved aside the Union Jack and, and developed a different identity. You spoke a bit about um, how this was like the consummation of um, England's belief in itself as the, the kings and the owners of football. But it was it's kind of I think Edgar Southgate has described it as an outlier. Is that right? Yes. Yes. So, so could we say that the victory in this match was like a happy accident, or was there something about the leadership of Alf Ramsey, the skill of the players? Um, basically, I guess I'm asking, <laughs> can, can we replicate it, um, or was it like a kind of one of those wonderful things where it just sometimes goes your way? Well, because England have travelled now for fifty six years without winning a, a, a second trophy, the temptation is always to go back, and I get asked this a lot. So, what was it about sixty six that was different? You know, what 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 were they able to do then that they haven't been able to do since? And one answer is is certainly uh, the generalship of of Alf Ramsey, who was a, a strategizer and who achieved something that Gareth Southgate is now achieving, which is that he he brought together a group of people. And he made them understand that uh, to win at international level, to be successful, you have to um, you have to buy into it, to use a modern phrase. And what that means is you have to kind of sacrifice your ego and your club loyalties and your tribalism and your and your self interest, and you have to believe in the in in the possibility that's been put in front of you by the manager. So Alf Ramsey said to those players, "Look, if if you work for this and if you follow my plan," and he did have a plan, a tactical and technical plan to win the World Cup. I guarantee to you, I can make you world champions. And, and Gareth Southgate, after a period of, of, of disengagement by England players and a, and a lack of faith and a fatalism and a sort of fear of playing for England has persuaded the current generation that, it, that it's worth their while, um, that they can be successful, they can be rewarded and that they can actually enjoy um, playing for England. It's not just a, an inquest waiting to happen. So, I mean, actually, one of the biggest problems Alf Ramsey had was kind of curbing the, the drinking culture of the mid-1960s. So those players were, they, 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 you know, they weren't as professional as today's players. They didn't have to be because the game wasn't based on relentless running and fitness stats. They could get away with, you know, carousing and drinking and, and, um, and treating training as a sort of occupational hazard almost. Um, and, and, and they weren't paid really to to be monkish either if you know they were paid a, a relatively modest amount so it was quite hard to to get a squad of players around to your way of thinking and get them to get them to make those sacrifices to get them to to put aside their normal lifestyles you know the you know the drinking all night after the game and the drinking all day on the Wednesday before the game and to to believe that that would bring them some reward and now Ramsey uh, did that brilliantly and all the while the players felt Okay, we'll do this because this guy knows what he's doing. He set out a plan for us. He set out a structure and a scheme, and if we follow it, we'll get what we want. Because players, footballers, always think when they deal with managers, will this guy help me get what I want? Will he make me successful? Will he make me rich or she? Uh, and that's their thinking, you know. And so, Alf Ramsey gave them that plan in '66, and because they were particularly committed and strong and sort of flinty people from from tough backgrounds I think they were able to to achieve it and Gareth Southgate has the same conundrum now he's given them the opportunity will they take it they certainly took it in 66 and and part of the nostalgia I think uh, for that time is is about the fact that it was a it was a triumph of of planning and strategy and actually English sport hasn't been very good at planning and strategy uh, it's been very good at the heart, but not so good with the head. Mm. What about the players? Could you tell us a bit about who was on the lineup? What kind of characters did we have, and and why were they special or important to the game? Yes, Ramsey had uh, three or four world class players. I mean, you can't win a World Cup if you don't have a smattering of world class players. So he had he had Bobby Moore and Bobby Charlton particularly. 
Ray Wilson, the left back, was probably the best left back in the world. Um, Nobby Stiles, fabulous uh, defensive midfielder. He had he had all the sort of elements uh, that he needed, really individual elements, uh, and he had this sort of collective uh, spirit and effort. Bobby Moore was 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 a, a player of sort of colossal natural ability, a, 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 a wonderful sense of the game, spatial awareness, uh, confidence on the ball, composure, uh, the ability to pass and move and see the game three moves before it happened, you know, and the obvious comparison there is with Franz Beckenbauer, who also played in that 66 game, a kind of majestic sweeper of a player who could who could see the whole pitch and was and had this amazing aura about him. Bobby Charlton was the most gifted player in that team, a man with trauma still from the uh, Munich air disaster of 1958, a, a quiet man, um, but a player of sort of match-winning natural ability. Nobby Styles was was the retriever, the terrier, the stopper, the the sort of breaker of of hearts, opposition hearts, uh, as he was against Eusebio in the semi final against Portugal. He was the enforcer. Uh, Jeff Hurst was the bolter who came in late and couldn't stop scoring. So you see, really, in any World Cup campaign, you need you need um, you need certain components and you need certain things to go your way. You need you need to have lucky guesses and he made a lucky guess with Jeff Hurst in 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 many ways but it's a wonderful thing uh, sport and football to see to see the chemistry between players uh, and individuals and and the uh, develop and the balance the structural balance develop to the point where you you look at a team an entity and say wow that's you know that's that's going places you mentioned that today football is much more focused on fitness and that wasn't so much the case then. If you were to describe the style of football that we would be watching being played if we were at this game in 1966, how would you describe it? That's a very good question because during the COVID pandemic, the game was was replayed on Channel 4 from start to finish as a, as a piece of theatre almost. And, and Glenn Hoddle, one of the most gifted English players of the last half century was the co-commentator and he couldn't stop himself noticing all the mistakes in the game. Uh, possession of the ball was was surrendered a lot. Um, the, the the tackling obviously was was ferocious. It was a it was a sort of messy attritional game. It certainly wasn't a thing of beauty. And modern football audiences now demand beauty and they demand, you know, sort of orchestral play and 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 brilliant individual um, finishing an artistry by Messi or Ronaldo, um, Kylian Mbappe. But at that time, it was much more a physical trial. That game was a physical context, contest, an attritional battle between two evenly matched teams. And, and you know, you wouldn't have watched that enjoying it artistically, but you, you would have seen the absolute ferocious commitment of, of two teams and 22 players you know, fighting over every ball and every inch of turf, and it was it was a it was a sort of classic of a vanished era in many ways. If you played that game now, people would call it a, t- a bad game, but it wasn't a bad game. It was a it was a game of of the heart and the spirit, and it was a game that that England had to had to empty themselves to win. Really, it was immensely difficult for England to win that match, and I think their pleasure was partly reflected just how much they'd had to had to give to commit to become world champions. Mm. And just listening to you speak about it is making me think how electric the atmosphere must have been when the win was was secured. Could we talk a bit about the immediate celebrations, the aftermath? And I don't know if there are any um, particular accounts that we could talk about of what, yeah, what that moment was like. Yes. London came to a standstill and the the Automobile Association said uh, it's like VE night, election night and New Year's Eve rolled into one. I've seen this elsewhere in the world. I was in France in 1998 in Paris when France won the World Cup and the whole of Paris was on the streets till dawn and it felt like the end of a war. It was the, the, this communal joy was Astonishing, and I remember wandering around Paris all night, wandering around the streets of Paris, thinking this is this is the happiest I've ever seen people, or certainly this number of people. And you got swept along in this um, unquestioning pride and joy, uh, uh, and uniting pride and joy. And London would have been quite a lot like that in 1966 after England won. The the footage of the coach 
trying to get back to the team hotel in Kensington is is intriguing. There's this huge surge of of bodies towards the coach and towards the hotel and and London police officers dressed in in the normal um, Bobby outfit of you know long coat and um, uh, helmet, but no, no riot gear. No, there are no barriers. There, there's no there's no sort of modern. Um, uh, crowd control there. The, the policemen are just sort of linking arms and trying to hold these people back. Nobody does anything silly. Nobody tries to storm the hotel. The players end up on the balcony, uh, serenading the crowd. Uh, it, it's a it's a it's a scene really that English football had wanted since 1872. I would argue, which is when my book starts, and 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 it ended up as a as a banquet. You know, a, a sort of a banquet that showed up the some of the dubious thinking of the time in some ways. I mean, you probably know that, that none of the women, wives and girlfriends, were allowed into the, 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 the banquet, into the main meal, the celebratory meal. They were, they were all put in a, a, an annex in a separate room. Uh, a lot of the players felt awful about that. The room was packed with, you know, committee men and FA people and hangers-on and stage door johnnies. But the, but the women who played such a big part in that, victory obviously uh, were were banished to a separate room and there's quite a lot of um, shame uh, from that certainly from some of the players they knew it was wrong and they they felt guilty about it um, for many years afterwards the fact that the women were denied their part in that victory in that way and were sort of well frankly humiliated in that way was was um, was the was the one really uh, sour note of the whole celebration I think but they all managed to get together again and go out clubbing and and stay out all night and and it was a tremendously um hedonistic scene but then the next day they uh, they, they were quite cool those england players because of course they were dressed in the sharp suits of the 60s and the following day they all turned up in sunglasses and sharp suits to a soho cinema to watch the game again uh with a you know with a sort of glass of lager in hand and everybody everybody looked very mellow and cool and soho-ish and it was a it was quite a nice um it was quite a nice way to to wrap the whole thing up, and then, and then they returned to their normal lives. Alan Ball drove up the M6 and had egg and chips. Jeff Hurst went back to his house that afternoon and mowed the lawn. That leads us on perfectly to our final scene, which is the aftermath for our players. If we were going to be in a particular place for this final scene, um, where would we be? We would be in. Ashington, a colliery town in the northeast of England, uh, where Bobby and Jack Charlton came from. Uh, they came from a mining family in a in a deprived colliery town, a town with a great tradition of producing um, great footballers. And I think in August 1966, they went back there to be received by the people of Ashington who had sent them on their way all those years ago. And that to me is, is one of the most poignant scenes in, in English football history because uh, they turned up in Ashington and they, they were given a, uh, a ride through town in a 1926 Rolls-Royce Phantom with the top down. It must have cost a fortune to hire that for the day. And this was the town where the where the shopkeeper had run in 1958 to tell Sissy Charlton that her, her son had been involved in the Munich air disaster and, you know, nobody knew whether Bobby Charlton had survived. Uh, the Charltons were, were royalty, really, in a, in a town that didn't go in for royalty very much. Uh, they grew up in a, in a terraced street, which I've, I've been to. They're back-to-back houses. They played football on the cobbles outside. Uh, Jack Charlton's great gift to his parents was to buy them a house in the end with an indoor toilet. And the the sort of climax of their return to Ashington that day was a gala dance organised by the Ashington Mine Workers Federation. You know, I mean, could you imagine today's footballers um, having that as, their, as the climax of their World Cup winning campaign? So we're really peering into a, a vanished world, a world where... England's footballers and footballers generally were completely rooted in the communities from which they came. And the money they did earn and the fame they achieved uh, did enable them to move into a different sphere, but it was a very modest sphere. They, they, if they had a, a detached house with a bit of a garden and three bedrooms, 
they felt like they'd made it. And to give you a, an illust another illustration of that, the, the, the World Cup winning team in 66 shared £22,000 in win bonuses. Um, the players felt, Bobby Moore particularly felt, that they should share it equally. Even the players who hadn't played much should get the same amount as Jeff Hurst, who had scored a hat-trick. So they all got £1,000 each, which was a pittance, really, for winning the World Cup, and certainly compared to the money they had generated by doing so. And again, it's, it, it, it's very moving to think that in not long after, really, 66, I mean, Ray Wilson, for example, became an embalmer at his father-in-law's funeral business. Uh, Jeff Hurst was on the dole for a while, um, became a, had to go up being a door-to-door -door salesman. You know, he tried everything to find a second life. Uh, uh, Bobby Moore lost money in business ventures and became a, a, a tabloid columnist and radio pundit. Uh, Bobby Charlton opened a, a travel agency. Um, in the main, these men returned to the world that they had come from, you know, and they were, they were well known, but they weren't, they weren't mega celebrities and they certainly weren't rich. And, and they ended up really, I think in many ways in, in, a, in, a, in their own museum because England haven't won anything since. The, these, these guys have been curators in their own museum telling their stories, that, you know, the same stories, trying to add new detail to make them fresh. But Jeff Hurst is, is still talking about 1966, his hat-trick in 1966 at dinners and talks and corporate events. And he's been doing that for 56 years. I sometimes wonder whether he ever gets sick of it. Um, it's, it's his living now, largely, and <clears throat> you can see why he does it. But it's curious to see the surviving members of that team still trapped in a place and a period where, to most English people now, it it it's a it's a it's an it's a piece of history it's it's a it's a, something that's in um not a pathé newsreel but it's it's nostalgic before the european championship final which england lost to italy on penalties gary lineker said and spoke for a, a generation really when he said look we all respect and love the memory of 1966 but we also need something new we're a bit sick of it now we need we need another win we need another team to to venerate and, you know, he admitted to the weariness that people feel about being stuck in something that now feels very old. But when you go back into it, um, it does come back to life and it does, it does invigorate and entrance all over again. It certainly did for me. I have one last question before we find out what your memento is from 1966 and we head back to the present. We've kind of covered this in, in different ways throughout our conversation, but I just wanted to kind of distill it down maybe, if, if possible. What can 1966 tell us about the history of English football? The best thing that it tells us is that England are capable. I think for, <laughs> there have been times in the last 20 years when people have given up on the idea of England as tournament contenders, you know, particularly in 2016 in, in Nice when they lost to Iceland. In the European Championship, there was a there was a widespread feeling that this was just this was a dead end, and that everybody should just go back to their clubs and to Premier League football and Champions League football and just enjoy that and forget about the England team ever being successful in tournaments. But the current era, the Gareth Southgate era, is is, is telling us that it's not over and that the possibility is still there, and that if you do the right things and make the right decisions, you you still can be successful. So we're not flogging a dead horse with the England team anymore, but. It felt like we were for an awful long time. And 66, uh, there are still lessons in from 66 to encourage uh, the current generation. It's, it's not all just stale history. There are, there are, there are little principles embedded in there uh, that, that can inspire players over generations and not just, um, you know, on a, on a TV screen in a nostalgia session. Uh, the commitment, the spirit, the, the togetherness, the, the self-sacrifice, the fervour and spirit that you need to be successful at international football, alongside all the other things that you really do need, like technical and tactical prowess. So I think I think 66 still, can still encourage English football. It still sustains English football on some level. It's just that it, it, it's rather old now and you have to you have to really dust it down to, to, to find the lessons in it because... It's lived on its own in this this museum for too long. Well, we all have our fingers crossed for tomorrow and for the rest of this tournament. 
Before we head back to the present day, you're allowed to bring back a memento with you from 1966. So what would you like to bring? Well, when I was uh, researching my book, I, I went to see a, a woman called Linda Spraggan in Millsborough, who showed me the tracksuit top that was worn by her father, Harold Shepherdson, who was Alf Ramsey's number two in 1966. And she produced it and held it up for me. And it was a it was an absolute thing of beauty, the 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 colour and the and the the the, the gold um, the gold twine on the badge and and the the sort of um, the, the pristine um, it was like a sort of mod it was like a great mod jacket really you know uh, and I was looking at it thinking God I'd love to have one of those you know that's that's just that that is the distillation of the best of English football in one tracksuit top and the best of the sixties so I wouldn't mind having that but in the absence of that. Uh, I would take as my item, please, uh, uh, the original vinyl edition of uh, Revolver by the Beatles. One, because it's such a great album, and two, because it expresses a point of change in music. It's a, it's a, it's a transitional, transformational album that points way into the future and makes you realise that, um, that, that culture is not a, a static event it's a it's a moving river and it's a it, it's such a brilliant album so if i could get a copy of that from the day it was released preferably signed by the beatles i think i think <laughs> i think i'll have that if you don't mind yeah i think we can manage that i think we can manage that we're all big beatles fans on the podcast so approving <laughs> paul thank you so much this has been such an interesting conversation and um has really got me even more fired up <laughs> uh, than i already was for the world cup so thank you Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. That was me, Artemis Irvin, speaking to Paul Hayward about the year 1966. England Football, the biography, is published by Simon & Schuster and is available to buy now. Don't forget you can visit our website to find out more information about this episode and any of our others. That's tttpodcast.com. And if you've enjoyed this conversation, we'd really appreciate it if you left us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us out. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week.